the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Feminism is, to put it bluntly, an angry movement. Women are told that they are oppressed and should rise up against their male oppressors. Despite the fact that women have been able to vote, have an equal status in the workforce, and often have even more opportunities than men, the narrative of the patriarchy is still being pushed upon us. We can see the influence of feminism in many aspects of our lives, and unfortunately, it isn't often for the betterment of our society. How do we come to such a vastly misrepresented view of men and women today? My guest today is Janice Fiamengo, and she will be speaking with us about these important issues. Janice retired in 2019 from her position as a professor of English at the University of Ottawa, Canada, and now lives in Vancouver with her husband. She is a men's advocate and a critic of feminism. She had a long-running YouTube series called The Fiamengo File that received a permanent ban from YouTube, and she has recently begun The Fiamengo File 2.0 about the history of feminism in order to demonstrate that feminism was never about equality. So welcome to the show, Janice. Oh, thank you very much, Mary Jean, for having me on the show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the uh, fact that your YouTube channel had a permanent ban is often a speech that it was actually telling the truth. I often find that there's a lot of uh, good channels being banned now from YouTube. Yeah, when you're getting a lot of flack, you know you're over the target. Yeah, for sure. So to start off, I was hoping you can give us a brief history about how the feminist movement began and also how it's evolved out of the present day, because it does look quite different to how it was when we uh, when feminists originally started. Yeah. Um, in some ways, though, it doesn't look as different as one might expect and assume. And that's what my research into early feminism has shown me. And I've been quite surprised and interested to discover that, that it was always a very angry movement mm-hmm. and although I think we, we tend to believe that feminism's early goals were moderate and reasonable and some of them were certainly it was never without anti-male animus a, a very deep anger at men uh, mm-hmm. a repugnance and loathing of um male sexuality in particular, but really just maleness in general, Mm. and a corresponding um, conviction of of righteousness on the part of women and of uh, moral superiority on the part of women, as that runs right from the beginning up into the present. So, so it just to give a brief overview, it begins. Um, you know, critics have different notions of exactly when it begins, but it begins in the mid nineteenth century, roughly, as a movement to secure women's legal and uh, political and professional rights, although never to to secure equal responsibilities, but to to secure equal rights with men. Uh, to enter the professions and for higher education, and uh, this is the this is the movement of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony in the United States, for example. It's also the very angry movement, the violent suffragette movement in the later nineteenth and early twentieth centuries in Britain, 
uh, led by mm -hmm. Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughter, Christabel Pankhurst. These were feminists who set off bombs, burned country homes, attempted to assassinate uh, a prime minister, uh, believed so deeply in their victimhood that they were quite willing to see men's lives damaged or even lives lost. And so, yes, that was that was the the first wave movement, and its its watchword was votes for women, chastity for men. And so, you could see there that interest in controlling male sexuality. Uh, a lot of discussion in the 19th century occurred um, having to do with prostitution, having to do with women's rights in marriage. Many feminists saw women as oppressed in marriage. They talked about marriage as sex slavery. Uh, there was that kind of bitterness and animosity. And so what we see right from the beginning, I think, is uh, feminism um, looking with eagle eyes at women's disadvantages and seeing those in so much detail that they never managed to see any disadvantages in men's lives. Mm -hmm. And they also recast the entire history of humanity as a history of men oppressing women. They, they refuse to see anything in the history of male-female relations as stemming from benevolence on the part of men or the desire to protect and provide for women and children. They recast it all as a story of victimization. So, so that, that's the first wave, which is generally thought to end in about 1920. Then we go on and we see this, what's often called the second wave that starts in the, about the early 1960s. This is the feminism of Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and Kate Millett and Jermaine Greer and Susan Brown Miller and later on Andrew Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon. And this is the feminism that um, has now um, achieved women's political and economic equality, or at least in terms of rights. There are no professions that women can't enter. And so now uh, second wave feminism begins to agitate for the end of sexist stereotypes. And it begins to talk about more invisible barriers that prevent women from living uh, emancipated lives. We also see here uh, an increased emphasis on uh, violence on the part of men against women and sexual violence on the part of men against women as uh, structures or mechanisms that prevent women from being able to live freely. Susan Brown Miller, for example, in 1978 puts forward the thesis that rape was not an aberrant crime. It wasn't something committed by antisocial individuals that was generally frowned upon in society, but in fact, it was the mechanism by which all men kept all women in a state of fear. And mm -hmm. so that was second wave feminism. You get to in the early 1980s, you have people like Catherine McKinnon, who was a law professor, making outrageous statements to the effect that the only difference between intercourse, the normal thing, and 
rape, the abnormal, is that the normal happens so often that it's hard to get anybody to see anything wrong with it. And so feminists set out to have people see something wrong with the normal. Uh, so the watchwords of second, word, second wave feminism were sisterhood is powerful and a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. There was that deep hostility. Then as we get into later periods, some, sometimes referred to as the, as the third wave of feminism, feminism in a way then begins to expand. It tries to become a kind of unified field theory for all social relations. So it begins to talk about other forms of oppression, including oppression on the grounds of race, uh, ethnicity, sexuality, class to a certain extent, uh, gender identity, disability, body size, a whole range of vectors of oppression. Mm. And uh, this becomes, um, we see here that that the, the position of the victim is the position of moral purity as we as we find uh, different groups of women struggling for preeminence in the victim hierarchy. And it always is the case that the, the person who can claim to be most victimized is the one who has the greatest right to speak and can make the others who are less victimized uh, feel the weight of their guilt or their complicity in oppression. Uh, the watchword of this phase of feminism is sisterhood is intersectional. Uh, and there's a great deal of talk about intersecting forms of oppression and a lot of tension between different groups of women. And uh, some people would say we're still in that phase, certainly the, the different forms of oppression uh, that divide women uh, are, are still uh, very much a focus, but we also have a renewed emphasis on the way in which women are united, again, in their shared uh, subjugation. Uh, this has come about largely through um, social media. Uh, we have movements like the Me Too movement uh, that asserts that all women everywhere are still vulnerable to male sexual predation. And we have the insistence that women should be able to call out these men for their alleged misdeeds. Uh, the insistence on uh, basic bedrocks of our society, such as the presumption of innocence and due process of law, are essentially seen as male inventions to protect male predators. And so many feminists believe that women should be uh, you know, simply championed for coming forward and naming their abuser, and that that abuser should be punished even without evidence or any form of due process. And uh, so um, the, the issue of accusing and of essentially um, giving women carte blanche to ruin a man's reputation and perhaps to deprive him of his source of livelihood merely through the process of accusation is a big issue in 21st century feminism. So that's, I think, you know, that's sort of where we've come to. And um, uh, what we find is really, uh, um, again, as I said earlier, a movement that looks at men without empathy, sees men as benefiting from 
um, male violence, as if all men take pleasure in um, having women fear them, and believes that the entirety of society is set up to oppress and, and disempower women, and it refuses to recognize any way in which women actually have power in our society, not least, of course, the, the power to accuse. Right. So it sounds like kind of a similar theme throughout all this since it started was the whole victimhood. And uh, yes. I didn't really, I, I wasn't really aware of the sort of more details about the early feminism. Um, I thought it was more focused on, I don't know, getting the vote and uh, equal mm-hmm. rights, but it, it sounds like there was still a lot of anti-men sentiments back then too. It was. It's quite striking, actually, if if for anyone who doubts this or is interested, uh, there's a short document one can easily find on the internet. It's called the Declaration of Sentiments. It was hmm. written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was the first major feminist leader in the United States. And it was a document that she wrote along with some of her friends, Lucretia Mott and some other Quaker women. They held a convention. It's thought to be the first women's rights convention. It was Mm -hmm. held in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, to discuss women's disabilities. And they wrote this document, which they modeled on the Declaration of Independence, And they adapted phrasing from the Declaration of Independence to say that the entire history of mankind was the history of repeated injuries and usurpation on the part of man against woman, having as its object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. Hmm. So that's a pretty damning statement about the entirety of the history of of mankind and men actually signed that document as well as a number of women and they made made various demands from men including the right to vote but many others but that Mm -hmm. deep anger and of course the fact that men signed that document would Mm -hmm. seem to contradict the claim that men were oppressors who didn't care about female suffering But those kinds of contradictions have never really stopped feminists from making these extremely unfair and prejudicial allegations. So if even back then men were signing the document, it sounds like they already uh, kind of were acknowledging the women's power, at least at some place in society, to put influence on them. Because um, you you wouldn't think that uh, they, like, I mean, I wouldn't think that they would, you know, normally be... uh, willing to find a document like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I find that quite remarkable. If, if what feminists have said about men were true, then the alacrity with which many men sympathized with women, took their side, and even engaged in self-condemnation, con- um, we wouldn't see that. You know, that, that would not be a feature of the male response to feminist demands, but it has very much been a feature. And we even find, for example, in 1869, you have John Stuart Mill, uh, one of the preeminent British political theorists and philosophers, writing a tract called The Subjection of Women, in which he uh, castigated his fellow male human beings and said that women should have absolutely equal rights with men. So there have always been men very willing to lend an ear to women's complaints. 
And right. yet that hasn't stopped the complaints. Mm. And I mean, it sounds like what they might be doing is they're they're sort of taking real issues like say women not being able to vote and kind of amplifying that and kind of making it seem like it's a lot worse than it is. Because I think, you know, there certainly were a lot of real issues that affected women, but I think the way that they took it, at least, kind of like out of proportion. Yes, that's very true. And, and you know, th- there is a great deal of misrepresentation by omission in all of feminist claims I've found. For example, the business about the right to vote, it was, it was um, not true that women couldn't vote at all. Uh, women for many, many years had voted in local elections, in school board elections, and those sorts of things. You know, w- women's uh, role in their local community had always been considered important and was encouraged. Uh, in the United States, individual states began giving women the right to vote. It was only really at the federal level that women didn't have the right to vote. And the other thing that is never mentioned in all of the exclamations about injustice is that many men could not vote at the very time that women were campaigning for their own rights to do so. The suffragettes who were setting off letter bombs and burning country homes to the ground didn't mention that 40% of British men in the late 19th century still didn't have the right to vote and that the extension of the suffrage had been a gradual process of democratic reform that occurred you know, over a number of decades and would eventually have been extended to women. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the right to vote came with it certain obligations that women were not the least bit interested in taking up, such as the obligation to lay down one's life, if necessary, in defense of one's country. And this was often mentioned when when uh, suffrage supporters would mention that women didn't have the right to vote at the federal level. And people would say, well, you know, the the ballot is understood as a kind of substitute bullet. In other words, the process of politics is war on another level. And if the political process breaks down, voters will be the ones who are expected to risk their lives defending their country. Now, if women have the right to vote, that means women get to make decisions about national affairs and international affairs without that corresponding responsibility to risk their lives in the case of a war. Women would always respond, ah, well, women will be against war. That was part of women's moral superiority, right? Women would never vote in a way that would make the likelihood of either civil or international strife likely. But as we've seen, uh, that hasn't been the case. And yet women have never been very interested in taking on the burden of male citizenship. So um, yeah, it's it's always been far more complicated than the feminist vision has presented it as being. Right. And it sounds like when they're engaging in things like... uh trying to burn down uh, buildings or assassinate. I think you were mentioning assassinate a prime minister. Or... Mm, yes, they, uh, a feminist threw a hatchet at oh. Prime Minister Herbert Asquith in 1912 oh. in Dublin. It mm-hmm. missed him and sliced off the ear of a, um Irish MP whom he was uh, riding in an open vehicle with. 
So that was the kind of violence that they were willing to engage in. Well, yeah, it seems pretty uh, hypocritical if they're saying, oh, we're we're against war, but then we're going to do all these uh, violent active, uh, activities to get what we want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, why don't we take a look a bit about um, some statistics. So we often hear that women are discriminated against in the workforce and are also targets of abuse. Uh, but did the statistics actually back this up? And if not, what did they really say? Yes. Um, well, it is illegal to discriminate against women in employment. And in fact, it is not illegal to discriminate against white men in employment. And so we know that in many workplaces, uh, if one is employed by a government or a university or a large or even small company or a law firm, there is affirmative action or equity hiring that's been in place for up to 40 years in, in uh, many cases. And so it means that women actually have many special advantages that men don't have. And um, the statistics don't tend to bear out this idea that women are disadvantaged. There's a major study done by um, two U.S. researchers out of MIT, and they found that women born after 1978 are doing much better than their male colleagues on four key indicators in terms of skills acquisition, in terms of you know attending university, getting university degrees, in terms of employment, real wages, and job status. So it simply is not true that in general, women are discriminated against. We hear a lot about the, uh, the pay gap but in fact, that's an earnings gap. And study after study has shown that it isn't the case that employers simply pay women less for the same work. Uh, the fact is that men are paid more because they tend to take riskier types of employment. They tend to work longer hours. They tend to be willing to travel and live in remote areas in order to take on their positions. They tend to work longer. The, really, they there are all sorts of concrete reasons that have nothing to do with discrimination that uh, account for this this earnings gap. So so that myth about discrimination against women is uh, one of those uh, feminist zombies that just uh, refuses to die no matter how often a stake is driven through its heart. There are also myths about violence against women, domestic violence in particular, and these are very contentious issues that feminists have championed uh, for a long time. And sober studies show that the situation there is much more complicated than feminists tell us. Uh, the feminist position is that men are violent and women are not violent, and that men use violence to assert control. And they do that because we live in a patriarchal society that believes it's right for men to control women and that men take pleasure from asserting their power and control. Now, if you look at the studies that have been done, there's one by uh, a man named a researcher out of um, sociology department. His name is Murray Strauss. And he looked at 200 studies of domestic violence and found generally gender parity in terms of 
those who who enact violence in a relationship in terms of kicking, punching, hitting. Women participate at almost exactly equal numbers to men. Hmm. Now, I should say that it's true that women tend to be injured more often and more often killed. Men are much stronger than women. But this is not to say that men are not injured. Often they are significantly injured. If you have a weapon in your hand, that tends to equalize the power differential between men and women. And men are also killed by their female partners. They tend to account for about a third, a quarter to a third of victims of domestic homicide uh, and and of, of injuries from intimate partner violence. So, but what he was focusing on was the fact that women initiate violence at least as often as men. Often, many studies suggest that women initiate violence somewhat more often. I think that may be because women are never, we're not told not to be violent. I, th- I find that quite interesting. You know, men are told that from a very young age, they shouldn't hit girls Uh, that it's a very bad thing to do, even if they're hit. Whereas girls are not told that. Girls are actually told the opposite. We see an encouragement to violence in many girls and and women, as if it is justified in some way, again, because of this notion of women as victims. So, Mm. And and what um, Murray Strauss found was that um, this idea that men enact violence because they enjoy exerting control is very damaging and doesn't help in preventing violence because mm-hmm. it, um, for one thing, it, it, it misidentifies the triggers for violence. He found that both men and women tend to be violent for similar reasons, uh, often because of addiction problems, alcoholism and drug addiction, because of mental illness, due to stress, um, because they were themselves abused in childhood. There's that kind of cycle of violence. And that applies to both men and women. And, um, and, And one of the things that he found most disturbing was that this model of the powerful victimizing man and the innocent victim woman actually doesn't help end violence one of the key indicators of whether a woman will be victimized in an intimate partner relationship is whether she is violent. Hmm. So that's quite interesting. You know, if you actually want to stop women's suffering, one of the things that you would say to the woman is, are you violent? And if you are, maybe you should take some counseling and training to get your violence under control because when women are violent, the likelihood that their partners will be violent back is much higher. And that's something that feminism simply cannot recognize because it doesn't fit with the feminist model. This was something that um, there's a famous uh, woman in the UK. Her name is Erin Pitsy. She started the shelter movement. I think it's called the refuge movement in the UK And initially, she started it as a series of shelters for women escaping from violence. But what she discovered through talking to these women and just observing them and getting to know them was that many of those women were themselves violent. Mm -hmm. And they were violent towards their children. 
and they had been violent towards their partners. And so she started realizing that violence is actually a generational problem. It isn't a patriarchal patriarchy problem per se. And that if we are really interested in making homes safer, we need to work with both men and women together. And we need to recognize that women have an equal capacity for violence. But mm -hmm. that's something that uh, is hotly denied by many feminist researchers. And this is the problem with, um, with advocacy research. As soon as you have an ideology that you want your research to support, it becomes very difficult then to actually respond to the data and to be scrupulous about accuracy. Yeah, it sounds like we really should be addressing violence in general, not necessarily violence from men or violence from women. It's really a problem that happens regardless of people's gender. Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh looks like we're about halfway through our show now. So we will take a quick break and uh, we will be back with some more interesting topics. So stay tuned. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code OUTLOUD and get 20% off. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com seven amazing years we know that if america fails the world will fail it is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty america out loud talk radio the liberty and justice for all all right so we are back with janice viamengo talking about feminism and uh, we were just talking about some statistics that were very interesting about uh, violence and also women's place in uh, higher education 
And kind of going off of that, how are the misrepresentations about men and domestic violence harming our society? So what are the consequences of this? Yes, um, misrepresentations are always not good um, because we have myth replacing reality. Um, but I think in the case of claims about domestic violence, they are particularly damaging because they're really striking at the root of the male-female pair bond, and which really is the fundamental fact of family life and just generally of, of relations between men and women in every other sphere as well. And, and so I think it's particularly destructive when men are portrayed as vicious perpetrators of violence, obviously that really harms women in that it makes women unnecessarily fearful and distrustful and angry, bitter mm -hmm. and resentful often. And it harms men, obviously, because it makes, um, well, it makes people not like men very much. I think we already live in a society that tends to prefer women. It seems like that may be almost in some ways built into our DNA. Uh, both women and men tend to feel more empathy for women than they do for men. And so then when you add to that this constant drumbeat of anti-male assertion, it increases that antipathy towards men. And I think it makes men feel bad about themselves. And they either feel ashamed, thinking that their sex is responsible for all the evil in the world, or they feel resentful because they rightly recognize that they're not being judged as individuals, but that they're being made to bear the burden of this collective guilt that uh, we hear constantly about in the in the mass media, at universities, and everywhere. So I think that is very, very damaging. And um, yeah, I, uh, it's it's striking to me the credulity with which the general public accepts some really outrageous claims about what men as a group allegedly do to women as a group. And I wrote on my Substack newsletter about a concussion campaign that was taken up by the YWCA in, in my city of Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, the Young Women's Christian Association, sponsored this campaign to raise awareness about the number of women who allegedly suffer concussion as a result of domestic violence. This was sponsored by Trevor Linden, who was an ex-Vancouver uh, Canucks hockey player, not ex, but retired. And he promoted this campaign and it was widely publicized in all the local newspapers and in some national newspapers. And it made startling claims. It said that for every professional hockey player who gets a concussion, 7,000 girls and women will get a concussion in a year. So I looked up the number of concussions in hockey. It said about 80 hockey players have concussion. So 80 times 7,000, you know, works out to over 500,000 concussions for girls and women every year from intimate partner violence. I looked in, I mean, I thought, this this can't how could this possibly be true everybody would know a number of girls and women 
who had had traumatic brain injury as a result of being beaten by their mm -hmm. partners. Could it possibly be true? I looked into the data that was being used to support this kind of egregious claim and found that it was all false. It was based on a StatsCan study, that's Statistics Canada, a study of intimate partner violence, which found that over four in 10 women and girls will suffer intimate partner violence in their lifetime. And that of those four out of 10, up to 92% would suffer traumatic brain injury. So I'm thinking, so that means three out of 10 women in their lifetimes will suffer traumatic brain injury? Uh, doesn't seem very believable. <laughs> it doesn't seem believable yeah. at all. And yet this was promoted by every major news organization in Vancouver and at the national level. And there's poor Trevor Linden having to bear the burden of shame of his sex and to speak out against this horror that is being perpetrated by men against women. Now, when you look into the study, it you find that uh, th this uh, large survey by Statistics Canada, you find that that was a very large survey, but that it measured violence, what it calls violence, extremely elastically. So it measures what it calls psychological violence, including having a partner who is very jealous. Yeah. Uh, having a partner who becomes angry and uses name calling as a form of abuse. It also included many forms of physical violence that aren't really violent per se, such as punching a wall or throwing something that might have hurt you if it had hit you, all of those kinds of things. It also lumps together, you know, all sorts of different shoving, pushing, being thrown down. Some of those things are indeed very violent. It, some of them are not particularly violent. Uh, so in other mm -hmm. words, it counts what I think most of us would agree are abuse. It's terrible to have somebody name call. Uh, those are not things that I would recommend anybody do in, in a, a relationship. It's, it's not very nice to be in a relationship with an extremely jealous person. But these do not, by any stretch of the imagination, constitute serious violence that could cause a traumatic brain injury. Uh, it included all sorts of other things. And it didn't measure the severity of the violence. So we had no way of knowing whether the person who had experienced this form of violence, whether that person was actually injured as a result, whether that person had to go to the hospital, uh, it was all just counted together as, as forms of intimate partner violence. So uh, it was pretty clear from looking at that study that there was no way that three out of 10 women, 92% of the four out of 10 who, who said they had experienced some form of intimate partner violence would have actually experienced concussion. The other study was a very small study of American Black women who had experienced severe violence, including abuse in childhood and the most severe forms of violence that could cause traumatic brain injury, including choking until they blacked out and blows to the head. It looked at those a small study group 
and found that up to one third of those women had probable traumatic brain injury. Now, in that study, which in no way supported this notion that 92% of all victims of domestic abuse would experience a concussion, in that study, there was a reference to another study. And this was the really interesting part to me. There was a reference to another study that, that looked at women who had traumatic brain injury. And it found that of those women, 92% of the traumatic brain injury could be traced to severe domestic violence. Mm -hmm. But you see how it was flipped. You take right. a sample group of women with traumatic brain injury and find that 92% of those were injured as a result of domestic violence. And then you claim that of all women who have ever reported any kind of abuse, you say that 92% of those will have or may have traumatic brain injury. It's, you know, it's a faulty syllogism. It, it doesn't make any sense. And I mean, I was just appalled that that level of misrepresentation was allowed to pass as news uncritically reported as evidence of a, you know, a massive problem in our society that everyone needs to be aware of. The people who promoted this lie, and it was supposed to, supposedly supported by researchers at the University of British Columbia, I don't know whether that was just stupidity, that they couldn't read the actual social scientific studies on which their claims were going to be based, or they deliberately misrepresented them. I don't know which it was, but it is shocking when you actually look into the basis for such claims to find out the level of misrepresentation at seeming dishonesty. Yeah, for sure. And it seems like, well, probably the reporters who are writing about this, they're not really that versed in the literature that they need for the studies to understand the studies. So, you know, they probably aren't really reading the details of the study or if they are, they're not really understanding, you know, the statistics. So you really need yeah. people who understand those sorts of things to be the ones writing about it. <laughs> yes. I, and and that's that's the issue, isn't it? That like most of us don't have time to look into the background of, of, you know, these various claims and to actually go and read the studies on which the claims are based and figure out whether they hold water or not. And because we have been so brainwashed to believe that really there is nothing that wouldn't be possible, no, no horror that we shouldn't be convinced to believe about men victimizing women that we are quite credulous when it comes to these kinds of overclaims. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's quite disturbing. Yeah, and when, when you look into the details, it's pretty clear that all of this is being misrepresented, but uh, people aren't going to be looking into the details, like it was saying. No, no, they'll mm -hmm. remember that 92% of four out of 10 women in their lifetime are going to suffer from concussion. And they'll think, wow, you know, and, and, and what that means is that when... When you hear, as we so often do, a claim about how this man was an abuser, this man did such and such to his wife or his girlfriend, then you think back to that concussion campaign. You think, yeah, there's a lot of guys out there. There are hundreds of thousands of men out there abusing their partners in such a terrible way. So this guy is probably guilty. 
So it all contributes to a climate in which we are willing to believe the worst of men. We're willing to see them destroyed personally. We're willing to see them locked up. And we're not willing to uh, give them the presumption of innocence. And yeah, it's that is really, really disturbing. And, it, and again, it affects women too, in that women then have a very distorted understanding of who men are. Mm-hmm. And I think it really undermines the people who are actually suffering from domestic violence, because it does happen. And if this is being really uh, exaggerated, then it really undermines the times that it actually does happen, which isn't as often, but it still happens. Yes. I mean, we should never uh, distort the truth because it hurts everybody. And it also, of course, uh, seriously hurts the men who are victims of domestic violence that even the Statistics Canada study found that while 44% of women and girls claimed they had experienced some form of abuse in their intimate relationships, 36% of men and boys had experienced some form of abuse. And mm-hmm. of course, we never hear, you know, that's pretty close, actually. Um, we, we never hear about the male victims. Uh, there are no shelters in Canada for, uh, or, or I think in the United States, maybe one or two, uh, for male victims of domestic violence. That is an issue that we uh, ignore or indeed laugh about. And again, I think because we have been so indoctrinated to believe that whatever happens to men, they they, they deserve it in some way, uh, that we actually encourage women to perpetrate violence or at least abuse and cruelty towards men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. And uh, we did talk a little bit about this before, but how is modern feminism uh, destroying the family unit and the roles of mothers and fathers? Mm, yes, well, um, that has been a focus of criticism. The the uh, the family has has been seen by feminists as uh, a site of oppression. Kate Millett said that it needed to be destroyed in order for women to be liberated. We can go back even much further. Mona Caird, a critic of marriage, wrote quite frequently about marriage as something that destroyed women in body and soul. Uh, Betty Friedan's book called The Feminine Mystique told women very clearly that being at home in the suburbs raising children, looking after the home, that these were essentially akin to being in a comfortable concentration camp. She actually used that phrase. She said that women were suffering a slow death of mind and spirit. And so all, you know, that, that intense cultural contempt for home and family and child rearing has had its effect, certainly. And you know, not just feminism, of course. I mean, we've we've got no fault divorce now um, introduced in the early 1960s, uh, which means that uh, one member of a marriage can, and it's more often men than women. Uh, women initiate divorces at about around 75 percent of the time, and I think that is partly because of this, you know, this strain of feminist thinking. Women can do better. If women are bored, you know, you owe it to yourself. Go, girl. I've seen women stand up and announce they just got divorced and receive a round of applause from from an audience. You know, there's this idea that there's something liberating about shucking off a husband 
that ha has grown tiresome to you. And um, so, yes, uh, women initiate divorces in 75% of cases, and men can find themselves unilaterally divorced, even though they did not want for the marriage to end. Uh, mm -hmm. And then at the same time, forced to put the bill for perhaps child support payments or alimony. Uh, and they may even be prevented from seeing the children that they never wanted to lose contact with. The ex-wife is angry enough and bitter enough or simply doesn't want her ex-husband involved in her children's lives. She can make some kind of allegation without any proof needed that she fears him, she fears his violence, he's made a threat at one point, and her ex-husband can be prevented from having any role in her children's lives. Mm -hmm. And this is very damaging. I think our society encourages women to believe that their children will be just as well off, if not better, given how much we all hate men and see them as abusive and controlling and dominating. And so women are encouraged to think that children don't need fathers. But in fact, this is a recipe for poverty and for dysfunction. It's very difficult for mothers to effectively raise children alone. We know that fatherlessness is linked to all sorts of social pathologies, you know, ranging from learning problems early on, uh, delinquency, uh, early school leaving, criminality, drug addiction, promiscuity. Uh, if you interview um, prison populations, huge percentage of, of men in prison are, are fatherless. Men, boys tend to be even more profoundly affected by fatherlessness than girls, but, but girls too in various ways. So this is a, uh, it's a terrible problem. And uh, I think we have encouraged it um, in all sorts of ways. Yeah, for sure. It's really unfortunate because the kids, kids that are growing up in these sorts of families, it's going to be perpetuated if they think it's normal, oh, you know, we don't have a father or like the, there's yes. other dysfunctional things in their mm -hmm. uh, families. It's, yeah. Yes. That's one of the things that uh, the, the study that I mentioned earlier by um, uh, Melanie Wasserman and David O'Toole called uh, Wayward Sons. It, they, that's what they found that the sons of fatherless homes, they, they simply didn't have the resources to attract a marriage partner because they tended to take very low-end jobs. They dropped out of school early on. They'd had problems with delinquency, with learning, with everything. So then they repeat the cycle. They don't get married. They're not able to be fathers to their children, but that doesn't mean that they don't have children. They're simply less involved in their children's lives. And so you have that repeating cycle of, of dysfunction and disaffection. Yeah, for sure. And uh, to end off, do you think there are any like real issues facing women today that feminism should be focusing on instead, perhaps women in other countries or just other issues that are more uh, important for feminists to focus on? Well, um, like women still do have their issues, certainly. In fact, it's quite fascinating and disturbing that most studies show that women today are less happy than they have been since studies of women's happiness began to be made. 
Um, there's one particular meta study. It looked at a whole variety of, of surveys of, of women and their self-reported uh, you know, sense of satisfaction. And it found that women were less happy, both absolutely in terms of comparison with previous generations, and they're even less happy than men. They feel that the women's movement has been a good thing. It's been achieving various goals, but they are themselves very discontented with their lives. And uh, there's a really interesting paper about this um, by two University of Pennsylvania researchers, and they can't, you know, they don't know how they could, you know, explain this. Basically, since the advent of feminism, second wave feminism, in the mid-1970s, there's been this steady decline in how women report on their own happiness. Mm-hmm. And so the researchers sort of tie themselves into not trying to say, well, yeah, feminism has been a success because women have more opportunities in the workplace and their wages are rising and they have more freedom of choice and they are sexually emancipated. And but there must be some way that this actually isn't benefiting them. But you know, they can't actually admit that perhaps feminism itself is part of the problem because it creates these types of deep-seated resentments, because it misrepresents to women what would make them happy in life. And so I think I think it's time for women to free themselves from feminist preconceptions altogether and to begin to look at the ways in which feminism is actually damaging to women's psyche, to the, their sense of themselves and to their relationships with men and, and their relationships with children. The idea that men are a burden, that children are a burden, that being good and being caring and, and striving for virtue, all those things are regarded by feminists as evidence that you are a dupe of patriarchy. But mm-hmm. actually what history shows is that those are areas where many, many women have their deepest desires fulfilled by caring. And so I think it's time that you know women really reject the resentment and the bitterness and the grievance mongering that are such a deep part of feminist victim ideology and, and start to think about how we can repair our relations with men, start to feel empathy for men's struggles, maybe even forget about women's particular troubles and start thinking about men and women's shared struggles and how the family can be strengthened. Uh, men are having lots of troubles and um, you know, they are 80% of suicides. They're 85% of deaths from drug overdoses. They're 80% of the homeless. They're 95% of the prison population. They're 97% of workplace fatalities. They're eight out of 10 homicides worldwide. Um, Maybe it's time for women to forget about women's troubles and really focus on helping everyone, you know, regardless of, of gender. That, that's yeah. that's what I I'm trying to do in my own life and 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 just to to leave aside the the victim mentality which forces us to see everything as a source of grievance and also cuts us off from feeling empathy for others increases mm-hmm. our sense of resentment and those are very bad things for one's mental health yeah for sure we see this uh 
victimhood mentality in many aspects of society. And yeah, I totally agree. I think it's definitely time to move on from that. (laughs) Yeah, to start being accountable. Um, Because it's one of the things, unfortunately, that I think feminism takes away from women is a sense of agency and accountability. Uh, and, And therefore, it denies women the opportunity for for moral growth and, and personal improvement, because we tend in our society to think that any criticism of women is a form of misogyny. But, you know, it isn't necessarily. And uh, uh, I think what women need now is to uh, claim our agency, to recognize our faults and our weaknesses and the way in which we contribute to problems, both in our home life and in the world, and to set about trying to improve things for everyone. Yes, definitely. I think that's very, uh, very important for us to focus on. Well, we're uh, out of time. Thank you so much for uh, your uh, discussion with us today, Janice. It was definitely very insightful and I'm sure audience will find it very interesting as well. Well, thanks, Mary Jean. Thank you for uh, allowing me to have my say. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much. All right, so this has been Mary Jean Harris on The Other Side of the Story and signing out.